can always start with dukkha. We like dukkha. <laughs> dukkha, dukkha. <clears throat> dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. It's like we were born to suffer. We thought we were born to be happy, but actually we were born to suffer. If you can accept that, then you're kind of on, you're on the road to the way out of suffering. If you think that your your purpose in life is to be happy, and that somehow life should give you or can give you happiness, then in a way you're you're misguided. You're kind of on a fool's errand because you'll keep looking at your life and at the world as somehow having this potential to deliver a durable, uh, lasting happiness. Uh, you can somehow manipulate the circumstances of your life, find just the right relationship, or just the right job, or just the right apartment, or just the right, you name it. And then you'll be happy. And by now you've probably gone through that cycle more than once. I remember being a little kid and thinking that if, if only I, my parents would give me a bicycle on, my, on Christmas, then like all my problems would be solved. Because all my friends had bicycles. I didn't have a bicycle. I figured if I got a bicycle, then I'd be able to go wherever I wanted. I'd be able to go with my friends. And I'd be so happy. All future problems and difficulties were invisible. Just, you know, I just had to have this one thing and then everything would be great. I'd never need anything else again after that. <clears throat> Didn't last very long. Uh, but. It, it actually, because it stuck in my mind, it was kind of a good lesson. And I'm sure you've all had this lesson too, which is that the things of your life, the objects and the circumstances and the people in them, they can give you pleasure. They can give you gratification. They can give you comfort. They can give you a sense of safety, a sense of belonging. Um, they can give you um, hits of fulfillment and connection and fun, etc. But these are all various forms of pleasure that are fleeting because those same circumstances, objects and people will also give you grief, loss, anger, disappointment, and ultimately unhappiness, non-gratification, non-joy. And so, we've, once we've seen this once, I saw it with my bicycle, but uh, it didn't convince me. I thought, well, okay, this bicycle didn't do it. Maybe another bicycle, <laughs> a better bicycle, maybe a car, maybe a motorcycle. Oh, a girlfriend, that'll do it for me. That was my biggest mistake. <laughs> and maybe another girlfriend. So, so as we as we age, we as we grow up, we keep we keep imagining that the next thing is going to do it for us. And then maybe we'll later on we'll get kind of jaded, like oh, nothing will ever make me happy. I'm just I'm just miserable. And that's how it's always going to be. Woe is me. And so we just kind of embrace our unhappiness and live in something like misery. But even if we're doing that, sort of out of the corner of our of our eye, we're kind of hoping that maybe someone will come along and relieve our misery. So the mind isn't really happy <laughs> being miserable. 
Like the, the, the mind wants to be happy. It wants, it's looking for joy, it's looking for happiness, pleasure, comfort, etc. And um, as long as we're seeking it in the externals of our world, uh, we're only going to get a little bit. We're only going to get little bits and pieces of happiness. It's the worldly happiness that the Buddha uh, said was um, uh, unstable, uncertain, fleeting, and not really under one's control. So he didn't say it wasn't happiness. It actually is happiness. It's just not the kind of happiness that you can count on. So this is important to to recognize when you're when you're pursuing something, anything in your life that you think is going to make you happy, is to reflect on this truth that it's it's not really going to make you happy. It might give you pleasure, and in response to that, your mind will generate a feeling of happiness that lasts for a while, but then it fades away. So where's the real happiness? Well, the Buddha wouldn't have taught us what he taught us if he if he didn't have something really good to deliver. And the goods are this, that there's an alternative to this endless pursuit of worldly happiness. Uh, we don't have to necessarily give up the worldly happinesses that we have, but we have to change our attitude towards them. If we see them as the only source, the only way to make ourselves happy, then we'll never be able to take an, an alternative proposition seriously. If we think, oh, you know, meditation is nice because it, it makes me feel peaceful. So there's another kind of form of temporary happiness. Um, and that's all, that's like all the Buddha's teachings really good for. Then we're still stuck in this world of kind of finding happiness in the world and losing it over and over again. Finding and losing, finding and losing. It's the same thing as birth and death and birth and death. The, the Buddha pointed out that our lives have this cyclical quality over and over and over again. The same processes happening. Variations in the same themes. So if we want to be happy, we have to change our approach. If we want to be durably happy, if we want to be reliably happy, successfully happy, unshakably happy, the Buddha's happiness is that kind of happiness that doesn't depend on external circumstances. It doesn't depend on getting what you want. Uh, it doesn't depend on objects or people or uh, time or life or health or anything else. It's a happiness that's of a different, you could say, mind flavor. The mind flavor of ordinary happiness is um, uh, sweet and gratifying. But it's also dynamic. It has... Like, peaks and valleys and waves and warbles and um, thrills and rushes and it's uh, it's like moving water and then eventually it kind of gets weaker and weaker like a storm like weather like a weather front moving through whereas the Buddha's happiness is more like um, uh, the stars in a, on, a, on an empty night on a clear night when there's no weather just the sky it's still and uh, seemingly unmoving. It has a solidity to it, and it doesn't move and shake and warble. It's more or less always there. 
the mind at peace, the mind at ease, the mind contented with the things the way things are, not looking for anything else particularly. So a mind that's that's in this kind of a state, if your knee hurts, well then you go, okay, my knee hurts. If it didn't stop hurting, it would be okay. But if it makes sense to move the knee, then you can move the knee. But it doesn't create either, it doesn't create any disturbance in the mind. If um, your dog dies, and, and the mind has this state of, of inner contentment and peace, then when, the dog, when your dog dies and you love your dog, grief will arise, pain will arise, heartache will arise. And the mind will still be at ease, still be at peace, still be unshaken by that loss. In fact, if anything, one's emotions become more acute, more accessible, more direct. Because the mind's not trying to hide itself, it's not trying to protect itself from being touched by the world. A lot of our energy can go into trying to protect ourselves, trying to shelter ourselves from being touched emotionally by the pains of this world. So if, you, if you're afraid of getting your heart broken, then you can't really fully love something. Because when it dies or passes away or leaves you, your heart will be broken. And of course, if you're protecting yourself, you don't really give your heart. But if you don't have anything to protect, then you can just completely love something. Totally just give your heart to it. And then when the, when the loss happens, your heart can be totally broken. And the heart, and, but the mind isn't disturbed by this because it sees that this is just the nature of things. And it doesn't, uh, it hasn't attached to things being unchanging. So we have to train our minds in order to arrive at this kind of a state. It's not something that arises by itself. Uh, I remember I was, I was raised Catholic, and uh, one of my ideas about God was that um, God was like, you know, they, they say, like, God the Father, our Father in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is a, a, a Catholic prayer. And the idea of my father made me think that God was, was this force that was going to kind of rescue me, kind of come into my life and kind of make me happy, give me the things that I want, protect me from danger. I was kind of counting on God as an external force to come in and deliver the happiness that I wanted. And you know, what can I say? God disappointed me. Uh, it didn't, uh, didn't work out the way I hoped. But I, part of me was still kind of like wishing or wanting the world to save me, to something in, in my life to kind of come in and, and rescue me from my circumstances of unhappiness. Um, and so whether you're chasing unhappiness by pursuing it, thinking that, or chasing happiness by uh, trying to get out of the world what you think you want, so, you know, getting into the right school, getting the right job, uh, making more money, or um, you're sort of passively waiting and pining for, uh, you know, Mr. Right to come along or Miss Right to come along to make your life complete. Well, I can tell you from experience that those are not strategies that are likely to work. Um, and the state of mind that's looking for something to solve the fundamental problem of unhappiness uh, and only sees the world as a source of happiness and not a source of, and, and or a source of problems. 
is being pushed around and buffeted by the external world, kind of knocked around by the constant changes in the, in the external world. And because it's pointed outwards, it never understands itself. The mind, as long as it's pointed outwards, looking for happiness in the world or looking for protection from the world, it's, it's never kind of turned around and looking inside and going, huh, how does, how does the circumstances of my life produce this feeling of gratification or dissatisfaction? How does it come about? You know, why is it that yesterday I was happy and today I'm unhappy? Um, or why is it that a particular set of circumstances that makes me happy makes somebody else unhappy or vice versa? So say there's a political election that you care about and some result happens, some politician gets elected, and some group of people are very happy about that and another group of people are very unhappy. How can the exact same event cause these two completely different results? I mean, the internal experience of happiness is pretty much the same. It's kind of fun and ebullient and uplifting and uh, exciting and maybe joyous. And the experience of unhappiness is pretty much the same for everybody. It's like kind of dark and remotely kind of uh, uh, despairing and uh, heavy and sad and grieving and painful. And one doesn't like it. Same exact event, two different complete reactions. So the, it's apparent that the happiness and the unhappiness isn't in the event itself. It doesn't come from there. Our events are simply events. It's our mind's reaction. It's what our mind does in response to the events. That creates the happiness or the unhappiness. So uh, if someone gives you a chocolate cake and you really like chocolate cake, and you feel really happy to get the chocolate cake, it's not the chocolate cake that's making you happy. It's your mind making you happy. And you're using the chocolate cake as a, eh, like a good excuse. Because yeah? you know it's going to give you some sort of pleasure when you eat it. And actually, when you, when you have the chocolate cake, probably the greatest happiness is when you just get it and before you start eating it, because you, you're anticipating all this pleasure. So that's, that's like maximum happiness, is before you've even consumed the chocolate cake. While you're consuming it, there's like declining happiness because you're, you're kind of getting fuller and you've had enough. And at a certain point, you can't really eat anymore. So you still have half this chocolate cake left and your, your happiness is like way down from, where, from the peak happiness. And so you can see that, that the, it's the mind sort of feeding on pleasure and the anticipation of pleasure that's generating the happiness. But the, the cake itself is just pleasure. Pleasure and happiness are two different things. So if the mind creates happiness out of the context that it gets from the world, or creates unhappiness out of the context that it gets from the world, just like that political election I was talking about. So if, you're, if, if your team wins and you feel happiness, and your friend is on the other team and she feels unhappiness, then it's obvious that it's just the mind doing it. The mind simply be decides to become happy or unhappy about external events. When we turn our minds around and look inwards and see what's happening on the inside, we start to understand how this happens, how the mind works, what its mechanisms are that make it able to change state from being happy to being unhappy. Uh, it's, it's mostly changing in response to our changing circumstances on the outside world. 
But when we see that very clearly for ourselves, then we can kind of see that that events on the outside and happiness or unhappiness on the inside, although there's some kind of a linkage there, they're not identical. In other words, external events are not happiness and unhappiness. The mind is the cause of unhappiness and unhappiness in response to external events. And the linkage is the key, is the secret, is the magic of the Buddha's teaching. What is that linkage? Why do our minds do what they do? Why do they make us unhappy? Why do they make us happy? Clinging. Right? Our minds have preconceived notions about what should and should not happen, or what, what is or is not true, what is or is not good. And if we, and so based on these preconceived notions, we have likes and dislikes, things that we like and things that we don't like. The preconceived notions are simply mental objects. And most of our preconceived notions are coming from our conditioning. So we're, we're born in a certain circumstance, we're raised in a certain way, we have certain parents, we have certain friends, we speak a certain language, we live in a certain cultural context. And all these things give us our likes and our dislikes. And there are other people in the world for, who have different likes and dislikes. We all know this, this is obvious. But for every like that you have, you can find, I guarantee you can find at least 100 people in the world who, who don't like that, who like the exact opposite, uh, with very few exceptions. Nobody really <coughs> likes pain, like agonizing pain, but some people are a lot, less, a lot more indifferent to it than, than maybe others are. But most of the things that make us happy and unhappy aren't so much physical pain as they are mental pains of various sorts. So if you like a particular person, there's going to be some other people who don't like that person. So this, this, these likes and these dislikes, we take them very seriously. We think that they're the basis of happiness. And we don't, we don't recognize that they're just mental predispositions. They're entirely happening in our heads. Well, if something's happening in your head, what if you could change it? What if you could just decide to be okay with stuff that you used to not like? Like, say, um, someone takes your parking space, or someone says something bad about you at school, or any number of things that go on in our ordinary life that don't hurt us physically, but hurt us emotionally, hurt us mentally. What if you could find the, the link in the mind that creates unhappiness out of those circumstances and just turn it off? That'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be awesome. Then you wouldn't have to suffer, right? So when something bad happens, it's just something bad happening. It's just like weather, you know? If it's raining, okay, it's raining. If it's sunny, yeah, it's nice, it's sunny. But the, the mind doesn't have to be moved if you can find this off switch. So then you can enjoy some sunny weather and you can put up with rainy weather and as it changes, it doesn't bother you one way or the other. Uh, when you get the things that you like, it doesn't mean that your likes and your dislikes won't, won't change, but your attachment to your likes and dislikes won't change. The, the, the linkage between getting what you want and happiness and not getting what you want and unhappiness, that linkage can be broken or can be significantly altered. So that when you get what you want, 
there's a, a sense of gratification and enjoyment. And when you don't get what you want, there's a sense of equanimity. In fact, even when you're getting what you want, there's a sense of equanimity. There's a feeling of, like, oh, this is, this is the sort of thing that I enjoy. I really like this. And there it goes. Now it's gone. Yep. That's okay. So the okayness is the happiness that the Buddha is pointing to. The ability to go through life without being pushed off center by the circumstances that come and go. Not being freaked out by the fact that you get sick and that you're going to get it and that you have to die. Or that the people that you love get sick and they have to die too. This is just the way it is and we can't escape those truths. But what we can escape is making ourselves miserable about them. Uh, making ourselves upset, making ourselves fearful and, and angry and sad and despairing and all the other painful emotions. Those are all optional, actually. So this, this optional way of approaching our lives is what the Buddha is teaching. And meditation is an important part of that, but it's only a, it's only a little bit. It's only maybe a third of what the Buddha taught. So when we sit in meditation, we're formally practicing key elements of the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the path that leads to this way out of suffering. This magic trick where we learn enough about our minds to be able to find the off switch. The off switch of suffering. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a big label on it. It's not so obvious. We have to, we have to become very, very, very sensitive and very well educated about exactly how our minds work. Ordinarily, we think the mind is you know, like, like a, the lights on the ceiling. You just flip the switch and then they come on and that's all you have to think about. But we actually have to study and investigate every little thing that the mind does. We have to come to understand where our intentions come from. We have to understand where our likes and dislikes come from and, and what causes them to come up. We have to understand the nature of memory. We have to start to understand how time works. And all these understandings come from basically simply watching your mind. How do you watch your mind? Well, you just did it for about 40 minutes, or at least you tried to when we sat here in meditation. You put your mind on an object, and then you pay attention. So if, you, if you're going to, to work, you're driving your car, you can watch your mind by simply intending to be aware of what you're doing as the moments go by. Using, say, something like uh, the contact of the steering wheel on your hands. If you can feel the steering wheel and you know that you're feeling the steering wheel, then you're kind of in contact with the present moment. And the automatic parts of the mind which drive the car, so the part that's scanning the traffic and the part that's making the little adjustments and to the pedals and everything else, those things can all sort of operate and you can be vaguely aware of them as well. But mostly you're just sort of staying present in the present moment. But most of the time when we drive our car or we do anything that's routine, we're kind of half awake doing it and our minds are thinking about something else. We're thinking about where, you know, what we're going to do when we get there or what we have left undone or who's, you know, who we're going to see. We're thinking about the future or we're thinking about the past or we're fantasizing about something completely unrelated to the fact that we're driving the car. And when we're doing that, we're not watching our minds. We're not educating ourselves on how it works. And we're continuing on the path of being lost and being subject to the vicissitudes of the world. 
So the training is a training that uses um, specific techniques, or you could say specific intentions. The intention to, con to conduct oneself very, very skillfully in the world. Uh, the Buddha called these right speech, right action, and right livelihood, based on right intention. What he means by right is those, those con courses of speech, courses of conduct, courses of action, and framework of intention that leads to wholesome outcomes for oneself and others. And not right is anything that, that goes the opposite of that. So anything that, that creates trouble, <clears throat> creates problems, makes your life miserable, makes the lives of others miserable, or leads in that direction, that would all count as not right. So there's the big picture. The Buddha taught about suffering. He taught that there's a cause. He called it clinging. He showed that when clinging goes away, the mind is freed. Suffering ceases. So you have to find the off switch to turn off this clinging. And that the way to get there is to follow his Eightfold Noble Path, which starts with right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then the three that we practiced this, this afternoon, which was right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. All of these techniques are things that we do with our time. Ideally, we do them all the time. That if we're speaking, we're always trying to practice right speech. If we're acting, we're always trying to practice right action. If we're at work and we're making our livelihood, we're always trying to make right livelihood. If we do that, then we're on the path. We're drawing closer and closer and closer to that time when we really understand how the mind works and that we're able to free ourselves from suffering. When we free ourselves from suffering, not only do we reduce the increment of suffering that there is in the world, but we create a field around us. Everybody that we contact, every being that we, that we encounter um, will be safe and will be potentially inspired and reassured by this possibility of freedom in our, in our example uh, and in the way that we conduct ourselves in the world. So we won't be creating suffering for ourselves and we won't be creating suffering for others. And that's a, a tremendous gift to give to the world. So that was my <coughs> introductory speech to get us all in the right frame of mind. We have a little bit of time left if there's anybody who has a question of any sort. There's one back. Uh, equanimity. Equanimity. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Oh, equanimity is a fantastic subject. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen you here a lot. Tell me your name. Tamara. Tamara. I, I looked just over there. I know you do. I, I've seen you before. Who's that person? Tamara, nice to, nice to hear your name. Equanimity. There are these four um, emotional states called the Brahma Viharas. Um, Brahma Vihara means um, dwelling, pa dwelling place of celestial beings or gods, houses of the gods. So um, if you want to be, if, you're, if you can completely free your mind from suffering, there's really only four emotions that are, that are worth feeling. These are called the Brahma Viharas. The emotional state of loving kindness or loving friendliness, metta. The, the emotional state of uh, compassion, karuna. The mental state or the emotional state of sympathetic joy or gladness, gladness of the joy of other people. 
So when you see someone enjoying their life or having fun, then you, that can be a source of happiness for you as well. And then uh, this other state called upeka or um, uh, equanimity gets translated as equanimity. Um, each one of these mental states, emotional states, can be cultivated as a uh, as a theme. So if you're uh, if you have a, a, an inclination towards like hating and aversion and dislike, you can use the cultivation of metta or loving kindness to help retrain the mind uh, in its in its typical response. So when you see somebody else, rather than wishing that they would go away and get out of your way, you can you can train your mind to come up with a feeling of like, oh look at a fellow human being, may you be happy. You know? um, may your life go well, may you be free from mental suffering. And so that response uh, creates tremendous protection for the mind from unwholesome states. We can also train the mind in sympathetic joy and in compassion and in this other condition called upeka or equanimity. You can see, you can kind of see the, the value of the first three pretty easily because they're, they're kind of a positive emotion, a positive response to, to uh, the rest of the world. And upeka actually is too, but it's more subtle, uh, equanimity. When, uh, when we're getting what we want, and we're really kind of gratifying on it, it's like, yeah, this is the best chocolate cake ever. Mmm, that's so good. You know, that kind of that mind getting when it's what, feeding on pleasure. If we don't have any equanimity, then all, that's kind of all we're aware of, and we're, we're, we're building attachment to it. Mm. And uh, when it goes away or we don't get it or we get sick of it, then we have to suffer. And the mind is disturbed by the whole process. A mind of equanimity, a same person with their mind developed in equanimity, can get what they, are, what they like and enjoy it in moderation and then set it aside without any pangs, any sort of uh, you know, residual grasping at it. Um, so equanimity is a kind of a balanced state of mind that's, that uh, responds to the world in the right measure and in accordance with the truth. So ordinarily, if we sort of throw aside all of the considerations and we just focus on the gratification that's available in the chocolate cake or whatever, then as we're hogging it down, we're not paying attention to the, part, to the fact that no one else is getting any, and that's going to make me fat, and I'm going to feel sick later on, and all these other things. Just going to, I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to focus on getting this pleasure. So equanimity is like this really mature state, which which sees, oh, this is this is you know someone very kindly gave me this cake. I you know, I, I experience a sense of pleasure when I eat it. I'm going to have a little bit, um, but bearing all these other things in mind, there's no point in going too far with this. It's something that arises and passes away. It doesn't have any other possibility. So you know. Uh, chocolate cake comes to us, we have it for a while, and then it passes away, and it's gone. Either our enjoyment of it's gone, or it's physically gone. It doesn't last very long. It gets stale, or someone else eats it. So, it, like anything that comes into our life that we like, has this quality of rising and passing away. So we see the wave-like nature of these things. And because of that, because of that seeing, we simply don't allow the mind to attach. The mind only attaches to things that it thinks are that it mistakes as being like a reliable and constant and safe and secure and sturdy, you know, for forms of gratification. But the mind that sees the rising and passing away of things always kind of responds to them in right measure. The same thing goes when things are not going the way we like. So if things are going badly, 
again, we see the rising and passing nature. We don't, we don't have to have an over-the-top emotional response to this. I mean, it's natural for emotions to come up, but we see the emotions as just part of the overall manifestation of the unpleasant situation, whatever it happens to be. And they, too, arise and pass away. So we don't have to express them. We don't have to make them somebody else's problem. We don't have to burden the rest of the world with them. If we have anger coming up, we can just feel the anger coming up. And then later on, the anger passes away, and we can feel that, too. So equanimity gives us this ability to see things very clearly, tolerate a, a very broad range of conditions, and basically not entangle ourselves in the potential for suffering. To, to basically stand aside from the suffering potential of the world and still be fully engaged with it. Right? So um, we often think of equanimity as being, uh, there's this idea in, in this teaching that, uh, the later teaching, that each one of these Brahma Viharas has a far enemy, which is pretty evident. So uh, equanimity's far enemy might be something like um, uh, uh, ridiculously stupid engagement. Right, Com you know, complete subsuming of awareness into into the moment, and its near enemy. So there's this idea of a far enemy and a near enemy. So, for example, compassion. The far the far enemy of compassion is something like uh, uh, glee at other people's suffering. The idea that other people are suffering makes you happy. That's the far enemy of compassion. Compassion is the the wish for others not to suffer. So, but the near enemy of compassion, kind of like it looks a little bit like compassion, but it's not quite the same thing, is pity, right? So the other person's suffering is unfortunate, but we don't really feel our heart moved by it. It's like, oh, that's too bad for you, you know, kind of pity. Uh, and it's kind of a, a standing aside and looking down upon someone else's suffering. Whereas true compassion like feels their suffering and wants to do something to help relieve it. So it's more intimate and it's, uh, it's more responsive. Pity tends to want to go, kind of like turn away, whereas compassion is like right there with it, and what can I do you know, to help? Equanimity's near enemy is indifference. So it looks, it looks the same because it's not as engaged, but it's, in, it's, um, it's covering itself up, it's protecting itself from having to feel. So when something really good comes along, it's like, I don't really want any, because I'll like it. And when something bad comes along, it's like, I'm like, I can't see that. I'm not going to pay attention to that. And so it's kind of like, it's like a numbness or a, 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 sh a sheltering of the heart from contact with the world. So one's own suffering, one can, one can be suffering and not really even know because one's kind of numbed oneself out. So one's own suffering, one's own gratification, and the suffering and gratification of others becomes sort of, vague and uh, one becomes indifferent to them. Whereas with, with equanimity, all those things are extremely visible, extremely accessible, and extremely present and real. And, uh, but one isn't pushed around by them. And so one can always respond in the most wise and mature way that one is capable of doing. And so it doesn't really partake of, of either indifference or uh, senseless over-involvement. Yes. So during the time of year, I'm wondering, uh, are curious, do Buddhist monks have goals or ambitions? Oh yeah, do we do like an annual review and, <laughs> and have goals and ambitions for the future? You bet. Uh, yeah, monks are, are, are uh, we don't necessarily re renew them at the new year for our, uh, 
as like some kind of a, as, a, a, an annual uh, observance. Um, I guess you could say that that the monastics have uh, uh, we do it more frequently. So uh, like every uh, every two weeks, we get together as a group, and we we go over our rules, the monastic rules. And the Buddha taught that the reason he gave us these monastic rules is for um, several reasons, including the, the longevity of the Sangha, the esteem of the uh, lay people so that they'd be inspired, um, for our own protection from uh, all evils that could befall us as monks, um, for the comfort of the well-behaved monks, for the um, effacement of kilesas or, or uh, uh, unwholesome states in the minds of the, of the poorly behaved monks, um, for and ultimately for the sake of awakening. So our goal is nibbana, is the Buddha's teach is the the Buddha's pointing to this goal, which is the complete extinguishing of the causes of suffering in our own hearts. Um, that that he gave it gave it a lot of names. He called it things like the highest happiness, the uh, the wonderful, the magnificent, the uh, the completely safe. The unaging, the unailing, the secure, the the further shore. He had lots of poetic uh, kind of terms for it, um, and uh, the one that we've heard the most is uh, nibbana, or in the Sanskrit nirvana. Right? Uh, and both the, the word nibbana means um, like, like cooling, or, or um, a, a, like a um, uh, a sunburn being soothed, maybe something like that. Or a flame going out, just like what's, what was disturbing and on fire before is now it's not cool. So this um, this extinguishment of the causes of suffering is what the Buddha has been pointing to, and what he's teaching us about, and what monks are all here for, ideally. And so every two weeks we sit down, we kind of go over our rules, and that's our chance to renew our our commitment to pursuing this path. Um, other than that, uh, New Year's Day is just another day. <laughs> How does the lunar cycle play? Um, well, the lunar cycle, uh, it's, it's kind of neat because it's, because it's a, a little bit oddball compared to the solar cycle. So the solar cycle is you know, seven days, 52 weeks a year, 365 days, you know, plus leap years and all that. Um, so the lunar cycle is just 29.53765 days. Uh, per lunar cycle, so it's it like it only engages with the solar cycle in this kind of weird moving back and forth thing. So we have like a week that's about seven and a half days long, and um, or seven and a quarter. Um, every once in a while, you'll get these things where like you'll get like New Year's Eve will be on a full moon, and uh, it'll be like seem particularly auspicious because you can walk around outside and it's really bright. And, you know, you'll get like uh, a lot of people will come to the monastery, but it's it's not uh, it's not something we make a special event out of. The only real events that we have in the Buddhist calendar are um, uh, our Katina, which happens in the fall after the range retreat, the start of the range retreat, the end of the range retreat, um, uh, Maga Puja. So these kind of traditional uh, puja days that uh, uh, celebrate the life of the Buddha, uh, the the founding of the Dhamma, and the 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 life of the Sangha. So these are kind of three days. But um, those are more just out of tradition rather than out of the Buddhist teachings. Right? So the, the, 
Buddha taught us how to conduct ourselves in a certain way. In the Buddha's lunar year, the only real significant event was this three-month section called the Range Retreat. Everything else is just waiting for the next Range Retreat. Other questions? We've got just a little more time if anybody has another question. Yes. Yeah, just now uh, you said that unstable mm -hmm. and also uh, I like to a little bit clear about the Buddha's happiness, mm -hmm. Buddhist way, mm -hmm. what we yeah, the Buddha's the happiness. So the, so the stability versus unstability. Yes. And, and so <clears throat> if you notice what's happening right now in your body and your mind, it's, it's got a quality of constant change. So uh, you can feel time sort of passing by. Uh, your heart's beating, your breath is moving in and out. Um, the sun is kind of moving across the sky, the day is passing, and thoughts are moving through your mind. Even as I'm speaking, there's words that are popping up and disappearing in your mind as you hear the flow of speech. And so this dynamic nature of the mind, of experience, dynamic nature of experience, is fundamentally unpredictable or unstable. We can, we can sort of forecast what's going to happen next. Uh, so if I start saying a particular sentence, you can almost predict how I'm going to finish it. And that's part of the reason that you're able to understand what I'm saying. So your mind is in motion all the time and it's engaging the world. It's always kind of predicting what's going to happen next. So when you stand up and turn around and go out the door, you kind of know what to expect when you go out there. And you'd be surprised if it was different. So your mind already knows what to expect. So it's, it's always referring to its memory of what happened and what its ideas about how the world works um, and uh, what to expect as it goes from one moment to the next, especially in any kind of a social interaction or any kind of bodily motion. So we're always predicting what our bodies are doing in space. This is dynamic, it's unstable, and it's, uh, it has a certain amount of uncertainty to it. You can't really say whether any particular thing is going to work exactly the way that you want. So there's, there's always this kind of subtle uncertainty to everything that happens. Attached to this is our perception of things as being actually not uncertain. Right? We, we sort of think that things are solid, stable, and real. Um, but a close examination shows them to be not so solid, not so stable, not so real. Um, and this is one of the things that we learn when we study the mind very carefully, that most of the ideas about solidity and, and co continuity are coming from our perceptions rather than from reality. So, um, you know, we think that this body is the same body that we were born with. But if you think about it a little bit, you can sort of see, well, the, the baby that, that was there however many years ago, <coughs> that was me, um, is completely gone. There's no sort of evidence of that baby now. There's, just, there's this physical form. And really, this physical form is a little different than it was this morning because I had lunch, and now there's new material in it and some old materials left. And so it's, physically, it's kind of turning over all the time. Um, the mental states that I have now as an adult were different than they were when I was three years old. So we think it's the same self, we think it's the same body over time, but these are merely mental representations. And the actual reality is it changed a lot from then to now, and it's, it's changing even in this very moment. Everything about our bodies are constantly changing, everything about our minds are constantly under change. 
So this, un, this dynamic, this uncertain, this unstable nature of all these things is the locus of this, kind of, it's kind of the, the you could say it's the, it's the basis of our experience of suffering. We're, we're caught in an unstable world, perceiving it as stable and reliable, and that misperception is a basis of uh, kind of a lot, a lot of mistaken perceptions about what's worth hanging on to. So we think the world is worth hanging on to because it seems stable and real and reliable and predictable and safe. And we don't realize that it's not real, not reliable, not predictable, not safe to hang on to. If we really realize that, we'd let go. If we let go, then we wouldn't suffer. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. So when we do let go, of what's unreal, unstable, unreliable. Uh, this, this is a mental act, right? We, we can't sort of physically let go. We have to train our minds to see where we're holding on, and it has to do with this perception of stability. So when, we, when we're able to perceive beyond that perception and see the truth about instability, then it becomes easy to let go, because you don't really want to hold on to something which is vibrating like an electrified piece of barbed wire. Right? You, just, you just want to let it go. So the mind's ability to let go arises with a deep seeing into the nature of uncertainty. And this comes about through a lot of practice and training. Um, when the mind lets go of that uncertainty, what's left isn't that uncertain. Right? Like it has a, you could say, uncertainty of a different nature. Right? But what's left basically is the unclinging nature of the mind. It doesn't cling anymore. And so the, the issue of uncertainty kind of goes away. There's no more uncertainty to worry about. Even though the world still is just as unstable as it was, and the mind still is as dynamic as it was under ordinary circumstances, there's a deep intuitive knowing that underneath all that, uh, that's kind of like all illusions, but underneath all that, um, there's an abiding that doesn't partake of instability. This is the stability that the Buddha is pointing to. In ordinary life, as you're kind of going through your day, it's, it's almost like background music. Even if you're not directly in contact with it, you can always sort of hear it. And it's, it's kind of infusing the way that you act and speak in the world. So you don't have to really guard yourself so much anymore because you're always kind of aware of the, of the unstable, unstable nature of all conditioned phenomena. And you're not taking it so seriously as you used to because your mind's really kind of shifted its view when it has a, a deep understanding of that.